Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and sort kind of lay out the context of our passage a little bit this morning. 1 Timothy is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul. And this is a letter written to Timothy, who was sort of his son in the faith. And Timothy was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And uh, in Ephesus, there were a number of false teachers who were kind of going around and, and spreading some false gospels and false teachings. And in this letter, Paul spends a lot of his time kind of addressing that and encouraging Timothy this young pastor, to sort of face this problem head on. And in fact, Paul addresses this problem with such urgency that this is, only, this is one of two letters that Paul wrote where he skips over his initial sort of thanksgiving. Paul usually starts his letters by giving an extended thanksgiving of, of, pray, of uh, prayer for the church or for the person he's writing to. But in 1 Timothy, he skips right over that because this uh, is such an urgent need. And when we get to our text this morning, it's going to be verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1. And Paul is uh, writing about, he's dealing with the false teachers, writing, encouraging Timothy about that. But he starts to talk about his own conversion and how that is, his conversion is sort of an example of the goodness of the gospel. Of how the gospel transforms sinners. Uh, and he's contrasting that with the false teaching of these false teachers that, look, this, is, this doesn't transform anyone, but look at what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And so uh, that's kind of where we get to our passage this morning. So I'll go ahead and read our text. This is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. This is God's word. <clears throat> I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him once again and ask him for his help this morning. Oh Lord, we do come to you as uh, needy people. Lord, we need your help. Uh, we need your help in every, uh, in every way. We need your help, especially when we come to your word, that we would understand it rightly, that you would teach us from it. Lord, we ask you, the God who said, let there be light, we ask you to shine a light on this passage, to shine a light on our hearts this morning. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I have a confession to make, okay? Um, this, this is my confession. I don't hate musicals, okay? Uh, in fact, I could even go so far to say there are some musicals that I like, okay? Please don't look at me any differently. Please don't tell anyone, okay? This is just between us. Uh, but, you know, musicals are an interesting, interesting thing. It, it sort of took me a while to learn to appreciate them because it just takes a... It's, it's such a jarring thing when you're watching a musical or something and, and the people are talking and then suddenly the music comes in and they start to break out into song. It's such an odd uh, kind of thing. It's, it's, it's hard to sort of, you know, get used to that, I think, initially. And so, you know, just for example, I mean, our street gangs uh, today don't uh, solve their problems with song and dance as the uh, people of West Side Story, the Jets and the Sharks. 
you know, life would be better probably if they did solve it that way. But, um, you know, it's just not how people behave in real life. The, people don't break out into song uh, in, in the middle of everyday conversations. Um, but, you know, that, that's actually exactly what we see the Apostle Paul doing in some of his letters. What we see in some of Paul's letters, he's writing, he's writing a letter, he's talking about various things, he's encouraging a pastor or a church, and suddenly he seems to just break out into song. One example of this is in Romans chapter 11. I remember in my seminary classes, we took a class on Acts and Romans, and Romans 11, our professor said, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Uh, this is one of the most debated passages in the Bible. Romans 11, you know, is where Paul talks about how the Jews have rejected uh, the gospel, they've rejected Jesus, and how the uh, wild olive shoot of the Gentiles have been grafted into the tree. And it's, it's, a, it's a difficult passage to work through, and Paul himself even says, brothers, this is a mystery. And you might expect at the end of this passage for Paul to express maybe some frustration, maybe some doubt about God's plan, because it is a tough chapter, it's a, a, a mystery, he says. But that's not what we see. When we get to the end of Romans 11, what we see is a doxology, which is just a fancy word for a song of praise, that Paul breaks out into song about this mystery, this difficult text, this difficult passage that's hard to understand, it ends with a song of praise, a song praising God's wisdom and God's attributes. And the passage before us this morning, we see something very similar. Paul is writing to Timothy, as I said, he's warning him about these false teachers that are in Ephesus, and he's encouraging him to, to stand up against these false teachers, and he starts to talk about his own conversion. And then as he's going along, we get to verse 17, and Paul just breaks into song. And starts to praise God. He gives a doxology here of praise just in the middle of this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. And so it really seems, looking at some of Paul's letters, that he lived a life marked by praise. He lived a life, what we might call a life of doxology. And here's the question that I want us to ponder this morning. Do you live a life of doxology? Do you live a life that is marked by praise? And I'm not suggesting that, you know, when you, you go to the supermarket and they have your favorite cereal and you start singing holy, 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 okay? That's not what a life of praise looks like. But do we have hearts and minds that are often filled with praise for our God? So this morning we're just going to have two points. Um, our first point is going to, we're going to ask, what is it that motivates Paul's praise? What is it that's motivating his doxology in this passage? And that's what we're really after this morning. That's what we're really interested in. So we'll spend a majority of our time on that point. Um, asking that, what is it that cultivates a life of doxology? And second, we'll ask, what is the message of his praise? We'll look at verse 17. What is it exactly he praises God for in verse 17? What's he saying? So first, the motivation of Paul's praise. So what is it that's driving his, his doxology here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1? <clears throat> well, the, the center of this passage seems to be this trustworthy saying we find in verse 15. Uh, now, Paul gives five trustworthy sayings. He uses this phrase five, five times in his letters. They're all in the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, and we think, we believe that, that these trustworthy sayings, that these were perhaps early creeds in the church, or maybe, it was, maybe they were some quotes from various early hymns or mottos that were circulating, the other church, circulating among the early church. But these are phrases that seem to be, have been communicated by mouth. They were something that was, were communicated fairly often. That it, these were sayings that early Christians would have been familiar with. And so one of those, perhaps the most famous of those, we see here in our passage in verse 15. So what is this trustworthy saying? Well, look with me at verse 15. Paul says this, The saying is trustworthy 
and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that is the, that is the saying. That is the trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think if we were to try and summarize the gospel uh, in a nutshell, if we were to try to take the gospel and boil it down to just one phrase, that's perhaps the best we could do. I'm not sure that we could boil it down to anything less than that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So the first thing that is driving Paul's praise is the gospel itself. The gospel is the good news of Jesus is motivating his praise. The the news that Jesus, who has existed from all eternity, put on flesh and dwelt among us. And why did he do this? He did this to save sinners. That's why he came. He came to die. He came to live a perfect life, to keep all of his father's commandments, and then to hang on a cross like a criminal for you and for me, to die for sinners so that we could be saved, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we would no longer be enemies of God, but that we would be called his sons and his daughters. But it's not, it's not like Paul is just merely interested in the gospel um, sort of in a clinical way. It's, it's not um, that he's sort of coldly analyzing this, like, yes, this sort of theological truth is, is uh, motivating me. But uh, it's that there is a personal element to this, okay? Look with, look with me at how um, verse 15 ends, when he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul is saying, Jesus came to save sinners, and I am one of them. And in fact, I'm the worst one. Now, we're often tempted to ask when we come to this passage, is Paul being disingenuous here? Is Paul, is this an example of some sort of apostolic false modesty that Paul says, I'm the, your translation might say, I'm the chief of sinners, or I'm the foremost of sinners? Um, well, let's look at how Paul describes himself earlier in this passage. Look back with me at verses 12 and 13. Paul writes this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And so Paul uses three terms to describe himself here. First, he says he was a blasphemer. Uh, this means that you know, he, he spoke false things about God. He denied Jesus was the Christ. He ridiculed the name of Christ. Uh, he, he was indeed a blasphemer, right? Uh, he also says he was a persecutor. He persecuted the church. He was there, as we remember from the book of Acts, he was there at Stephen's death. The very first martyr in the Christian church was Stephen. And Paul was there, and it says that he approved, he was there approving of what he saw. And Paul t- the book of Acts also tells us that Paul was ravaging the church, that he was going from house to house, dragging off men and women to prison for believing and preaching about Jesus. And finally, he says he was an insolent opponent. And this is sort of a little bit of an unusual phrase, but literally what, what the Greek here means is that he was a person filled with pride, who is heaping insults on others or doing some shameful act of violence against them. There, there is a connotation of violence sort of in this. In your translation, some translations say a violent opponent or a violent man. And so this is how Paul describes himself. This is what he says he was. Um, and I'm going to read a portion from Acts 26. Feel free to turn there if you want to. Acts 26. If not, I'll, I can read it to us. Um, Acts 26, as Paul is giving... There's three times that... Or two or three times in Acts that he gives his testimony before some official. He shares what God has done in his life. And this is one of the the, uh, final ones. In chapter 26 of Acts, he's appearing before Agrippa. And he's sort of sharing his testimony, sharing the things that God has done in his life. And listen to how he describes his life before he became a Christian. Verses 9 through 11. Paul says this, I myself was convinced 
that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's Paul's own words. Paul describing his life before he became a Christian. And we see the three terms he uses here in 1 Timothy 1 appear there as well. That he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a violent opponent to Jesus and to the church. And so as far as damage being done against the name of Jesus, against the followers of Jesus, yeah, I think we can say Paul was probably among the worst sinners of all time. He's not exaggerating. This is not sort of some false modesty. This is his testimony. This is his, this is his story. So right now, it may be difficult to see where's, where Paul's song of praise is coming from. Where is this joyful praise coming from? Because right now, he's just talking about his sin. Right now, this is kind of uh, a dreary sort of chapter, a dreary section. I'm not sure where's the song coming from. But perhaps that is where we start to miss out on the life of doxology. Maybe it's, this is why Paul has a song of praise on his lips, and that sometimes we do not. Because we don't like to think about our sin. We don't, especially don't like to talk about our sin. It's often easier for us as Christians to sort of focus on the sin of other people. Maybe the sin of people outside the church. Or the sin of the person down the street. Rather than to sort of reflect on our own lives, on our own hearts, and to see the sin in our own lives. We may be tempted to look down at others, to sort of self-righteously judge them. While we either ignore our own sins, or excuse our sins, or... Um, Blame our sins on other people. Blame our sins on our circumstances and things of that nature. Or just to pretend that our sins don't exist. But what we're seeing here is that this is necessary. That, that we, in order, to, in order for the gospel to, to put a song on our lips, to put a song in our hearts, we have to recognize and acknowledge and realize our sin problem. We have to realize how deep that goes if we want to live a life of doxology like Paul. Uh, because if we miss this part, if we fail to take this part seriously, then the next part is not going to be as meaningful for us. Um, when I was in seminary, there was a TV show on called Lost. I'm not sure if you guys remember Lost or if you watched Lost. Uh, you know, it was this crazy sort of mystery sh- show, okay? And um, ultimately, pretty pitiful ending, so don't waste your time. But uh, anyway, it, it, while it was on the air, it was really exciting. And so this, there's this plane crash on this island and these, you know... There's all these mysterious and crazy things happening, and each season just got more outlandish and just this, the crazy things that would happen, and there'd be, you know, all these questions raised, and occasionally there'd be questions answered. And so I remember when I was in seminary, I worked in the admissions department in my seminary, and we would, you know, every Tuesday morning, I guess, what was, we would all, after the show had been on Monday night, we'd all come in and start talking about our theories, and there was even one of our professors uh, who was in on it. He was uh, our professor, Dr. Anderson. He was a... a um, a, a British man, he, he was our apologetics professor, you know, he has two PhDs, super smart, you know, very mild-mannered guy, but he would come and join our little conversations, and he just had the most, the craziest theories ever about Lost, and sometimes, you know, people, other people would kind of join in, like, oh, what are you guys talking about, this sounds weird, you know, and, uh, and we would say, we're talking about the show Lost, and after a little bit, they would say, oh, I want to get in on this, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch next week, and we would be like, no, 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 you can't, you can't start now, you have to go back to the beginning, you've got to track down the DVDs. You can't just jump in season three, okay? You've got to start at the beginning because 
if you just started in some random place, then all the mysteries, all the revelations, nothing's going to make sense to you. You're going to be you're going to be lost as the, appropriately. Uh, but you know, you just can't start in the middle. You've got to you've got to go back to the beginning. And so I think it's the same here, right? If we try to just start with the good news, if we just try to start with you know the second half of the equation of the gospel, start with the grace of God. If we don't first understand how deep our sin problem is then the good news of the gospel is not going to make much sense to us. It's not going to seem like good news. It's not going to um, move us and lead us to praise unless we first understand the backstory that we are sinners uh, separated from God in need of grace, in need of a Savior. And so we see in this passage that Paul has proven pretty clearly that he is a sinner, that he uh, is the chief of sinners, in fact. Um, But the key to Paul's motivation uh, of praise comes... The second half of the equation here, which we see in verse 13. So look back at verse 13. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Those are some beautiful words there. But I received mercy. That God did not give me the punishment I deserve. He had mercy on me. He spared me, and that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. That not only did God have mercy, but God, he, he he poured out his grace for me. So Paul is saying here, look, you know, it's not only that I was pardoned. It's so much more than that. It's not only that I was forgiven of my sins. It's so much more than that. He's saying I was adopted. I was made a son. That this man who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent opponent, that God looked at him and said... I'm going to make you mine, that you are, going, you are no longer going to be my enemy, but you will be a beloved son. And this is where Paul's doxology comes from, that this is what's driving and motivating his praise, that Jesus came to save sinners, even the very worst sinners. And also note with me that when, when Paul ends his, for, in, uh, his faithful saying here, when he ends it, he does not say, um, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was the foremost. He says, I am the foremost. Why would Paul say that? Why would he use the present verb there? Why would he say, I am the foremost sinner? I am the chief of sinners. Um, certainly Paul's no longer blaspheming. He's no longer persecuting the church as he once did. But what we see here is that Paul knows that he has not outgrown his need of the gospel. He has not outgrown his need for Jesus. Paul is not saying, you know, I really, I, I really needed to help. I was a bad sinner. I was the worst sinner. But I got saved and now I'm good. Now I'm good to go. Now I'm fine. Uh, Paul says, no, I am a sinner, that I still desperately need that mercy. I still desperately need the, God, the grace of God. I still desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ each and every minute. Paul, the missionary, Paul, the New Testament writer, Paul, the apostle, is still utterly dependent on Jesus. And there's a sense in which we all hold this view that there, there is no one sin in the world that you are more acquainted with than your own. Right? I, there is no one sin that I know better than Gavin Breeden's. I know my sin better than anyone else's sin. And so there's a sense in which I can certainly see myself as the chief of sinners, just because I'm more acquainted with my sin than with anyone else's. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you know, well, I can see why Paul would would praise God. I can see why this would lead him to praise. That's a really great story. His testimony is amazing, right? Going from being the lead persecutor of the church to being the lead missionary for the church. That's, That's amazing. But... But that's not my testimony. But my, my conversion story is nothing like that. 
And maybe you would say, maybe you're like me. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you were converted as a, a child. And that's a blessing that we certainly shouldn't take for granted, a blessing we shouldn't overlook. But certainly, I was not saved from a life of persecuting Christians when I was converted. I'm sure most of us in here were not saved from that. Um, and so it may be somewhat discouraging for us. We may say, well, my story is not like Paul's story. My story is not as, is not as flashy as that. And Paul acknowledges that. Look at verse 16 with me. Paul says this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, that's the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is saying this. He's saying, my life is like a neon sign. Okay, My life is like a billboard. My life is like an advertisement uh, that's advertising the patience of Jesus, advertising the grace of God, that when we look at Paul, when we look at his life, when we look at his testimony, that we are to think, wow. So this Jesus can make literally anyone clean. If Jesus can make Paul clean, Jesus can make any sinner clean. That there is no one who is so bad, there is no one that God's grace cannot reach. There is no one who is so bad they cannot be a part of God's people. And so just hearing Paul's story ought to encourage us to praise. It ought to uh, remind us that we serve a God that takes persecutors and turns them into missionaries. That we serve a Savior that can take a fierce enemy and turn him into a beloved son. But it's also important for us not to sell our own testimony short, not to think of our own conversion stories as boring. Um, you may not have been persecuting the church when you were converted, uh, but you were sinning against a holy God. You were on a path to destruction. You were a slave to sin, but you received mercy. The grace of the Lord overflowed for you in the person and work of Jesus. And even now, you are being transformed. You are being sanctified. God is at work in you. And, that he, and he promises that the good work he begins in us, that he will bring it to completion. That is the good news that is motivating and driving Paul's doxology. That is what ought to be driving us to doxology as well. And so, you know, we struggle to have, we still may struggle to have a life of doxology like this. Uh, why is that? Well, it's not that the gospel message isn't powerful enough. It's not that the gospel itself is weak, that it doesn't, is not worthy of our praise uh, perhaps it's that we, it's perhaps it's the way that we listen to the gospel, the way that we hear the gospel. You know, I've noticed this new um, sort of uh, uh, trend online. You see certain like video trends kind of pop up. But I've noticed that a lot of, online, I see a lot of videos of people who receive the um, cochlear implants. These people who are deaf, and uh, instead of a hearing aid, they receive like an implant in their brain, which functions like an inner ear. And you see these videos of family members who have recorded, uh, it's like in a doctor's office. And this person, oftentimes, who has been deaf from, from birth or deaf from childhood, they receive this cochlear implant, and they go to the doctor's office, and they're getting it turned on for the very first time. And their family members, they're, like, recording it. And, you know, there's some amazing videos out there. Um, there's one of, like, a little baby boy who's, you know, he's like a year old, and hearing his mother's voice for the first time. And he's, like, sucking on a pacifier, and then, like, he, she starts talking to him, and he just, like, spits it out. He's just, like, amazed. And there's another one of a woman who's 29 years old, and she had been deaf her entire life. And she, for the very first time, she hears her own voice. And she just breaks down and sobbing. And so I would recommend checking these videos out. They're pretty cool. Because here, here, there's two things that will happen when you watch these videos. The first thing is you will cry. I don't know why, but you will cry when you watch these videos, especially the little baby one. Um... The second thing that's going to happen is that you will listen to things differently the rest of the day. 
You will think about what you're hearing. Because you'll start to think, like, what if I'd never heard birds chirping? Or what if I'd never heard music? Or what if I'd never heard my child laugh? You know, what if I'd never, what if these things, I'd never heard another person's voice, I'd never heard these things. And you start to realize how we sort of take these things for granted, that these things that we hear every day. But for folks who have never heard those things, how that might feel, what that might be like to hear those things for the first time. It, you, you would, and you'll start taking note of the things that you hear the rest of that day after you watch these kind of videos. And you'll start to think about it. And you'll, it's, it's refreshing. You start to hear things almost with new ears, you know, and to appreciate these things that we hear. I think it's the same way with hearing the gospel. You know, everything I've said this morning, we've heard before. You, you have heard the gospel presented a million times in your life, many of you. That we are sinners, that Jesus came to save us. Um, but perhaps the reason the gospel doesn't uh, move us to praise is not because there's something wrong with the gospel. But it's because there's something wrong with the way that we're listening. That we're listening, uh, we're, we're sort of halfway listening to it. We're listening to it's almost become like white noise for us. We take it for granted. Well, how do we fix this? Well, we have to make the gospel personal again. Uh, we, this is not just a story. The gospel is not just a story that non-Christians need to hear so that they can become Christians. The gospel is, a, is something that we need to hear each and every day. We need to realize that we need Jesus just as much today as the day that we first believed. That we need to learn to say with Paul that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We need to learn to say that. We need to believe that. And that's what puts us, I think, on this path to a life of doxology. So this is what's motivating Paul. Uh, That's what's motivating him to doxology, to praise. It's the gospel. It's the grace of God to him, a sinner. So what is the message of his praise? Very briefly, we will um, consider this. What's the message of Paul's praise? We see his his doxology is in verse 17. So he's writing about this stuff. And notice he just breaks into song. He says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, the first thing that we notice about Paul's doxology is that it is not about us, right? It is focused on God. Uh, It's not focused on how we feel. It's not focused on what we're doing. Uh, It's focused on God himself, who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. So let's briefly just walk through some of the things that Paul mentions here. The first thing he says, he calls God the king of ages. So there is no throne. There is no king. There is no power that can challenge God, that he, he rules over all things in every age of human history, from the Garden of Eden to uh, the building of the pyramids to, uh, the, uh, to the death of his son Jesus on the cross, to the day that you were born, the day that I was born, the very best day of your life, the very worst day of your life, to today, a thousand years from today. In all of those days, God is the king. He's the king of ages. He's the king. He's on the throne. In each and every one of those days, he is the king of ages. There is no other king to contest that. Also, we see Paul says that God is immortal. Okay, He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. God was not created. He was not born. Um, he, is, he is immortal. He is eternal. Uh, there is nothing that can ever remove him. He, nothing put him here and nothing can remove him. And, and also, he, Paul says that God is invisible. This one seems a little bit interesting. I, you know, we don't really... Usually when we're talking about, we're talking about things that we praise God for, his invisibility is not one that often makes the list, not one that we often talk about. Um, but we know from the Bible that God is spirit, that what this tells us is that he is not limited. God is not limited by flesh and blood like we are. He is not limited by time and space. He is not limited by anything. Uh, he is not 
under the same constraints that we are as uh, material beings. And finally, we see that he is the only God, that there is only one, that there is no other God, there is no other contender. He is the only one. And this last one is one that we need to be reminded of the most, perhaps, that human beings, God has made us, he has hardwired us to be worshipers, that we will worship no matter what uh, you may tell yourself your religion is, you are a worshiper, right? Whether it's, you're going to worship something, we're going to make a God out of anything, uh, we will seek our value. We'll seek our satisfaction from things like, uh, you know, money, from things like even our children, uh, or things like approval, uh, reputation, um, a, a, you know, a car or a house or whatever. We can take these things and turn that into our God, and that's the thing that we devote our time and our energy and our money to. That's the thing that we worship. Uh, but Paul says that there is only one God. There is only one who can satisfy, because everything else that you worship is going to drain you. It's going to leave you hungrier. It's going to leave you thirstier. But when you worship God, it satisfies you. It fills you. Uh, it, it, it gives you everything that these other things we try to worship cannot. And so finally Paul says, To God, to Him be honor and glory forever and ever. So God is worthy of our worship. Not just our worship on Sunday mornings, but He is worthy of our worship all the time, forever and ever. That rightfully belongs to him. So this is what a life of doxology sounds like. It is focused on the Lord. It is focused on who he is and what he does. And this is what we're after. That when we think, this is what we're hoping to achieve, hoping to get, is that like Paul, when we think about our lives, when we think about the ways that God has worked in our lives, that it leads us to praise. When we think about how God has saved us, how he's transforming us, that it makes us want to sing. It makes us want to break out in doxology. And so what is it that's hindering you from a life of doxology? You know, the, from what we've seen this morning, there's probably one of two things that's, that's hindering us from doxology. It could be both things. Perhaps we have a too, too high a view of ourselves. Uh, perhaps we've forgotten that we're a sinner. We've forgotten that, uh, uh, that what, it's, what that means and what, that's, uh, what that, the Bible tells us about that. We've forgotten how much we need the gospel. We've forgotten how much we need Jesus each and every day. So perhaps we have too high a view of ourselves, or perhaps we have too low a view of God. Perhaps we've forgotten that he is the king of the ages, that he is high above us, and yet he is near to the brokenhearted, that he's almighty and powerful and wise, and yet he is tender and gracious and merciful. We've forgotten that all power and glory and honor belong to him. And so this week, for many folks, is, is a spring break week, okay? Um, it's, so spring break often kind of gives us a time to take a little break from the from school from things that we normally do i know a lot of mothers in here are like what are you talking about i you know i have i don't have time to make a cup of coffee in the morning i don't have time for you know any kind of break on spring break um but perhaps spring break might provide us because it's our schedules are a little different perhaps it'll provide us an opportunity for a little reflection perhaps it'll provide us an opportunity to to think about these things to think about a life of doxology to think about how our how we view ourselves as sinners, how we view God's grace, uh, how we view the gospel of Jesus as the only hope for sinners like us. Maybe an opportunity for us to reflect on that, to hopefully cultivate in ourselves, a, um, by God's grace, by his help, cultivate a life of praise, a life of doxology. And we need to be reminded each and every day, we need to be reminded above all of this, that the saying is trustworthy and worthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that uh, you uh, had mercy on sinners like us, that though we were undeserving of your love and your grace, that you poured it out on us, that you sent your son, Jesus. Uh, Even while we were your enemies, you sent Jesus to die for us. And Lord, help us to find a great comfort in that. Help us to find great hope and peace in that. Help us to remember that though... Uh, we're weak, uh, we're sinners. Help us to remember that uh, you love us, you care for us. Uh, help us to live lives that are marked by praise, lives of doxology. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.